Hello, this is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day, and this is a podcast from the ninth annual Global Peter Drucker Forum in Vienna. It happened last November. With me is Hal Gregerson of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Sloan School, and other things. What's your real job, Hal? <laughs> Two roles at MIT. One is the executive director of the MIT Leadership Center, and the other is a senior lecturer in innovation and leadership at MIT Sloan School. And you've started thinking hard about questions. You think that's a very important attribute of what a company does. Absolutely. Peter Drucker once said, there's nothing more useless or dangerous than the right answer to the wrong question. And what I've found in my research over the last five years in particular is that the questions are the answers. Explore that a bit for me. <laughs> or rather, give me the questions to ask you. This is the challenge. You know, there's been a lot of, there are, there are actually quite a few books out there about how do you ask better questions, and many of them are just lists of questions to ask. I have a very different approach, which is, it's not a list of questions, but it's a list of conditions that you, Peter, or I could put myself in that if we do that, the right question will actually surface and emerge. It's a different way of looking at it. Instead of what is a list of questions, it's what situations could I put myself in so that a different question that will unlock a challenge will come forward. The way I think about it is that I have a listener on my shoulder, a little incubus, whispering questions in my ear, the questions that he or she once answered as a result of the answers I've just got. That's my awareness of the context in which I operate. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about the awareness of the context in which an organization or a company operates, aren't you? In one sense, you have a list of questions. And I can give you a list of questions, which is, I land in a new place. I might ask questions like, what's working here? What's not working and why? And I'm literally trying to figure out what's the terrain, what descriptively is happening. It's probably what you do in your interviews, what's working, what's not, and why. Those sound simple, but they're terribly difficult to get honest answers to. Because to get to the core of a problem, there's got to be a deep level of trust when those questions get asked. If you go to Japan and ask questions, you get yes, yes, and you think you've got agreement. It just means I've heard you. But you may also talk to people who speak English and who give you the answers they think you want rather than anything about the question you've actually asked. So context is enormously important. Totally. And so in Japan, hierarchy matters. Where you are in the organization makes a huge difference on what people will and won't say to you. But I don't think it's, it's maybe accentuated in Japan, but in any organization on planet Earth, the higher we go, the higher the probability that people will start telling me what they think I want to hear and stop telling me what they think I don't want to hear, and then I might as well be in Japan. Now, your idea about questions emerged when you were studying American companies moving out globally and taking with them their very American assumptions about how the world or their markets work. Actually, I've lived in Finland for three years, and a lot of the initial research was Finnish companies going global because they have a small market, and the reality was their dynamic was the same as American companies. You land in a new place. It's easy to assume that things are the same when they're not, and these leaders who excelled had opposite assumptions, which were, I do not know what I don't know here, and I need to explore carefully, and questions are going to be a key to unlock some of these things that could blindside me. 
So the first question is exactly what I asked you. What question should I be asking? In one sense, yes. And that goes back to very simple questions. What's working here? What's not and why? In the search of understanding what's going on. So yes, I, in that sense, I agree with you. But those questions are the foundational piece to then move to, okay, how might, what else, what if, why not? Those sorts of questions come from a repetitive engagement in situations where I'm with people who are not like me. I'm in places that are not normal for my routine. And those people who are different and those places who are different literally give me information, cause me to be wrong and uncomfortable, and force me to be quiet. And when that happens, the question that I may have never asked will either be asked of me or I will actually understand it well enough to ask somebody else. So the discomfort is quite an important part of this. Absolutely. If we're trying to do something radically different that will generate a huge amount of value, it inevitably those kinds of questions will cut to the core of history. They will cut to the core of all the sunk costs we've gotten, what we've always done, and that's why it's uncomfortable. Because I may have actually built those systems, those structures, those procedures, and now you're saying they're all wrong? That's going to be uncomfortable for me at so many levels, including who am I? But if I'm willing to experience the discomfort and not run from it, be quiet enough, long enough, an insight will come, a new question will formulate that might take me down a new path. Well, some organizations use anthropologists to produce data or to produce findings that they can then turn into markets. And I think proper academic anthropologists frown at that, but that's one way of approaching this, of at least getting some of the ground rules in place for asking the right questions. No, totally. So I'm, I'm going to come back to what you just asked with the following, which is most leaders, especially senior leaders, get information shoved actively at them all the time. And instead of that, these great leaders who ask great questions, they're actively looking for passive data. They're anthropologists. With their eyes wide open, their ears wide open, their mouth completely shut, watching to see what's going on. Well, it is said that A.G. Laffley of Procter & Gamble, the chairman, mm -hmm. used to go out washing clothes with women in India on the side of rivers so that he picked up what context they were trying to sell their detergent in. I interviewed A.G. Laffley 20 years ago before he was ever the CEO, and what I learned was what you just described, he has done since he was in his 20s, and that's exactly what I'm talking about. A.G. wakes up on Monday morning asking himself, what am I going to be curious about this week? Then he gets out into the world, he gets into the consumer space, in the supermarkets, in their homes, and that's where the new right questions surface. Because there are many companies, you might argue that it's corporatization. That's what corporatization is, who hire a team of people with clipboards to go out and ask those questions in a new market they're trying to conquer. Mm -hmm. And what happens is that's secondary data. I'm a senior leader. I ask someone else to go collect the primary data. And what happens is when they're doing the primary data work, I don't have as deep of as an emotional commitment or connection to the data. And as a result, I'm less likely to follow through on it and do something about it. But I'm a busy CEO. I haven't got time to go out and ask the questions myself, have I? 
Well, if you look at the most innovative companies in the world, and we've actually got a metric from a financial performance measure of what those companies are, you walk inside those companies, they have innovative leaders who are at the CEO level, and they are generating a sustainably innovative financial track record. They spend one-third of their time doing exactly what I described. They know it's not an option. They carve it out of their schedule to be out there in places with people who aren't like them. So a lot of CEOs will say, oh, I'm out, there in the, I'm out there in the market. I'm talking to my customers. But their customers that they're talking about are the other CEOs. That's not going to get them very far. Bring um, the theme of the forum into this, growth and inclusive prosperity. How does that relate to asking questions when you're high up in an organization? Growth and prosperity comes from leaders who are growing and inclusive in trying to build prosperity. And so becoming at the, getting to the top of an organization, perhaps even owning the organization, perhaps being the most expert person of the key capability of the organization, you add all those things together and it leads to a situation where people can be super isolated. And that's the dilemma of the top. And so the Drucker Forum is trying to say, no, we want to get growth and inclusive prosperity, which means people at the top of some of the biggest organizations on planet Earth need to step out of those isolated bubbles and get into the world and in a very connected, co-creating way, build something different than we already have. And it's possible for these vast organizations to do that, is it? I think they're so corporatized, they can't. They've got skins as thick as rhinoceroses. <laughs> and that thickness of skin is where the trouble begins. It is, but Mark Benioff, for example, at Salesforce.com, it's a 20-year-old company, has one of the highest innovation premiums, super successful track record, and he's the owner of the place. He has all the reason to not listen. And so one day he's sitting in a meeting and he discovers that there's an online internal grievances chat room going on in the company that he didn't know about. Some of the people were wondering at the top, should we shut this down? Mark didn't know about it. He said, let me see what's on that. He looked, he scrolled through. These were raw, unfiltered pieces of information about what's going on at Salesforce. And he's like, there's no way we're shutting this down. This is the kind of data that we all, including me, need to have for us to become better than we are. I know that sounds like the exception, but Ed Catmull, Pixar, Disney Animation Studios president, he's the same exact way. You know, to me, he calls that senior role a dangerous disconnect by definition. And so he actively gets out there in the world, inside of Pixar and outside, to get information he otherwise wouldn't get. And the tool which people don't have necessarily naturally, is asking the right questions. It is. And so that's where we kind of know that. You know that. I know that. Every leader I would say is asking the right questions important. They would say yes. But then if I ask them, how do you do that? They're a little, they don't know what to say. And for me, my answer to them is twofold. Look at your schedule. Look at how you spend your day on a daily basis. Figure out people you could talk to and places you could spend your time in that are going to force you almost to be wrong and comfortable and quiet. And if you do that, you'll be surprised at the questions that will either come at you or that will surface inside of you. There's a second way that any leader could build these better questions that is less about how I'm behaving every day 
And it's more about the moment. I call it a question burst. And I know that sounds like some management gimmick. I get it. I've done it for 20 years. I accidentally discovered it, but it works. And here's what the deal is. If you or I, Peter, had a problem that we're stuck on, we're trying to get a solution to, you might, two minutes, tell me what's the issue. And then all I need to do is you and I get a piece of paper and generate as many possible questions as we can about your challenge. We can't answer any of the questions. Let's say it's a four-minute period. We can't answer any of those questions. We can't explain why we're asking the questions because if we answer or explain why we're doing it, we're walking people into how we see the problem. But imagine it, four minutes, nothing but questions. At the end of that time period, 80% of the time, we're going to get a reframe challenge. We're going to get at least one new idea to take us on a better path. We're going to be asking the better question. It, again, it sounds like a trivial method, but it actually works. Well, the questions I was trained to ask as a journalist were all the W's, who, what, why, when, where. I'm with you on that. Who, what, why, when, where. Adrian Woolridge, who writes at The Economist, basically told me when he was early on in his career, he looked around like, who's the best journalist and questioner? And it was Bob Woodward from his perspective. He watched Bob do his work, and he concluded Bob was always asking the deeply simple questions with those who, what, when, where, how, but they were short and they were simple, and they seemed so obvious at times that the room would laugh at his questions. But he was probing the edge of the system with simplicity, and that's how Bob Woodward got stories nobody else got. That needs actually quite a lot of self-confidence to keep it simple. It does. As a photographer, I learned early on, and I, anyway, it's compose a picture and then wait for something interesting to happen. That's what Bob Woodward is doing. He composes a question that's simple and probing around what matters in an organization, and then he waits. And he's completely comfortable with the laughter because he knows where it's going. Is that how you came into this business, through the eye of a photographer? A photographer, you said? It is. Now, early on, I paid my way through college doing wedding and portrait photography. Four years ago, I met Sam Abel, who's a 30-year National Geographic veteran, for the last four years, Sam and I do a workshop called Leadership in the Lens. It's teaching leaders how to ask better questions through photography. One of the first principles is compose and wait. One of the biggest challenges for people in our workshop is waiting. Well, if you're asking questions orally, the silence of waiting is uh, an embarrassment. It's an embarrassment, but if we don't ask questions that demand silence, in other words, a three or four second silent pause before someone responds, they're probably not helpful questions. Questions that get instant responses take us nowhere but where we are. When I ask questions of the technologists, I think I first encountered this phenomenon at MIT many years ago. Often the answer comes from a technology person. It's now spreading into all sorts of other ways of life. So, and then the answer is given. And in that so, used to be well in the old days, now it's so, you can hear the clunk of a prepared answer being put in place. It's almost like a machine doing it. Mm -hmm. And it means you are getting simply the authorized response mm -hmm. rather than anything that goes deeper. Totally. And even in the most innovative companies who might be closely connected to their customer, they might be using design thinking skills and innovation skills to get great products and services. They often don't turn those same skills internally to do what you're describing, which is, how do I get my leaders off script? 
to ask and answer the questions that we normally don't consider. But if we don't consider them now, those unasked questions will come back to blindside us later. And that's what you're probing at. And it's an important place to probe. You mentioned design thinking. That's very interesting. When I first encountered design thinking, I thought this was terribly important because of the way it connects an organization to the world it's operating in, in a way that all the conventional hierarchies of a business do not. Designers design for individuals, not for groups and classes of people. And that's a very important change. It's asking the right questions. Totally. And so what design thinking is doing is getting a mindset in a leader, which is problem-centered. What's the problem we're trying to solve for here? And it's not going to be answered by sitting in our office space. We're going to have to get up, get out, get into the world, get in the faces and the places where we're going to see things we normally don't see. And at the end of the day, when we do that with design thinking, we learn empathy of something we never understood before. And that's where the right question surfaces. Yeah, but really, modern people say in answer to that, oh, but now we have these vast data flows. We can do the same sort of um, analysis with this vast amount of previously unavailable data. And my answer would be, that's great. You know, MIT, we're big on big data, okay? <laughs> but the issue is, it's not a question of either or. There are insights to be gleaned from that big data. So this is what Jeff Bezos says at Amazon. It's basically, we do that kind of deep data analysis, but then he tells his people, don't trust the data. Do it, but don't fully trust it. And the way you don't fully trust it is, you get out into the world with the data points that are associated with real people, and you're right with them. That's where you start getting ideas that you wouldn't get just by sitting with that big data. Al Gregerson of MIT, thank you very much indeed. This is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day. Another podcast coming up soon.